We all have a story to tell. Let's tell yours. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast with your host, Jason. Come together and listen to journey stories and more from interesting people. Welcome your host, Jason. Today on the Intellectual People Podcast, I have Brad Bennett from Novem Industries. How are you today, Brad? I'm well, Jason. How are you? Very well, thank you. Happy New Year to you and your family. Same to you. Thank you. So, Brad, tell everybody what Novem Industries is. Novem Industries is a recycling company um, that started back in 2008. Um, didn't really start as a recycling business. In 2008, it was a garbage hauling uh, company, and it kind of evolved into a recycling business. Um, primarily through the need, uh, we were a garbage company and we started source separating all our trash, um, to, to get rid of different commodities, mostly to just save money and ended up with a large pile of wood. So we would separate all the different commodities, steel, concrete, um, you know, cardboard, anything we could make money on to take it out of the, the general waste stream and and the heavier items that we could get rid of at a discount um and we ended up with a large pile of wood and then i ended up with an idea hey let's if we buy a grinder we can turn that into landscape mulch and then um so that's what i ended up doing in 2010 and um, i want to get i want to get to that point okay so if you can Let's go back now. Now that everybody knows what Novem Industries is, how did you get there? Because you have a quite long road to how you got to Novem Industries, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, because I'm sure as a little boy, you didn't say, I want to grind pallets one day and sell the byproduct, right? So how did you get there? Let's go back to when Brad Bennett was a young man. All right. And let's start there. Oh, boy. Um, okay. So, grew up in Connecticut, um, yep. right New York City, uh, about half an hour outside of New York City in Stanford, Connecticut. And um, my dad was a fireman, um, but uh, my uncle was a, um, was a contractor. Wow. I grew up uh, working for my uncle during the summers. Gosh, I probably started with my uncle when I was uh, 10, um, just being a laborer during the summers and, and learned the carpentry end of life um, and enjoyed, you know, building houses and, and, and working in that industry. And um, also enjoyed, you know, I lived literally next to the fire department. Um, and I sort of gravitated towards that. My best friend ended up being a New York City fireman. Um, my f family is, um, you know, are, lived around the fire service. My grandfather was a fireman. My my father was a fireman. My uncle was a fireman. Uh, my friends are firemen. So, you know, kind of came to a crossroad of what are you going to do in life? But sure. throw also into the mix that. Um, I was also as a young boy chasing a dream of, of driving race cars. Ah. So I had all this going on and, um, 
I ended up gravitating towards driving race cars for the good majority of my youth. Okay. Were you successful at driving race cars? Oh, well, yeah. I had some success, but okay. the long and short of it is, um, you know, I, was I successful? I had some success. I was okay. successful in finding out um, what I was supposed to do in life, which was not drive race cars. Understood. Uh, you know, but in, in with that being said, my dad was a phenomenal fabricator. Even though he was a fi fireman, his true calling in life was a fabricator. You know, he he was he was a he has he had a gift of and a talent of fabricating. Um, he was just a phenomenal fabricator. So one of his side jobs, obviously, uh, ironically, was welding um, for a, a company in town called Stanford Tool and Die, and he actually welded seat brackets for um, a company for the space shuttle. So he was just a phenomenal, talented fabricator. And, and, and I, I loved that. I loved building race cars. I loved creating, fabricating. Um, and that was a majority of my youth. And then working also for my uncle, um, you know, learning business and ethics. And, you know, I look back on it now, all those things I learned in my youth um, and then uh, growing up around the firehouse, you learned how to manage people. Um, okay. My grandfather and my father and manage people because half the half the fire department was volunteer. So I got all these lessons in in my youth that I really didn't understand how it was molding me. Um, but you know, obviously, I was the racing part of my life was was fun. It was great, and then. Um, you know, like 2004, we just talked about this. 2004 was our last full season, I'll call it, in Bush North in a, in a series that we raced. And then um, at the same time, my wife and I had already moved down here, down south, to pursue my racing career. Um, and we chose as a family to not head back north um, just because it was – we we felt that North Carolina had become our home and it was a better place to raise a family. Sure. So we stayed here and we just, you know, I, I ended up working for a race team for a little while and, and inside of me, that was not what I wanted to do. Inside of me, my, my passion, my desire was to own my own business and so that I could create, so I could continue what was, be, what had been instilled in me for when I was a child. So was sure. So how do we go from working for major NASCAR cup teams, mm -hmm. right? To coming up with an idea of November industries. How did that originate? So, wow. Um, you know, I, it was all just kind of came to me. I don't know. I just, on a piece of paper. Um, well, let's let's start first. Novem, so Novem Industries ha has evolved over time, as you've said, right? So when when you, I'm sorry, dramatically, yeah, right. So when Novem Industries first started, right, 
you still had a grinder and you still did some of that, right? So yeah. I, I, I want to understand how we decided that grinding wood pallets would be a profitable business because I've never, I understand where mulch comes from, right? And you, I'm sure you'll elaborate on all of that. I want to understand though, how, how grinding pallets and using them for other uses, which really is unheard of as far as I know, came about because that is what is so impressive to me. So, okay, so let's back up. So yep. the way Novem came about was, again, it started off as, you know, I have this fascination with trucks and, and you know, I, I like trucking. Um, so I wanted to own a dumpster company, right? So I, like, I, and, and I really didn't want to work all that hard, let's be honest, I didn't want to work that hard. So I, I'll get a dumpster truck and I'll just set out dumpsters and then I'll just go pick them up. Well, it's really not that easy, right? So. And again, starting a business in 2008 was difficult, right? It was a really difficult time to start a business. Absolutely. Um, but fortunately for me, it was just myself, a truck, and some cans, uh, some containers, some dumpster containers. That's all I was, was a commercial dumpster trash company. Okay. And I'm not going to lie, and it, it was very difficult. I was very fortunate to have my uncle my aunt, my uncle, my family behind me, helping me. It was, I mean, that's really what springboarded me to, to success is they believed in me okay. uh, and they made up the gaps, but I worked my guts out to try to, to get it to work. Um, and we, we made it work. Um, now the, the reason that came about and I touched on it before was the necessity of trying to get rid of these commodities to save money so that I didn't have to pay the dump fees and I ended up with this pile of wood was trying to diversify so that I wasn't beholden to dumps was wasn't beholden to to the dump to sticking material into the landfill um, was trying to create a, a, a you know value added in the material um, out of a waste stream. Because if you look at any recycling company, the best thing you can possibly do is take a, a discarded material that has no value and, and you know, process it in some way and then turn around and, and sell it for a high value product. Sure. So, you know, you get paid on both ends. And at the same time, uh, I got hooked up with a company here in town that was opening a boiler fuel um, needing wood for boiler fuel to heat their facility. Well, it didn't take long, and I'll just give you some quick numbers. So when I first started grinding wood in 2010, we might have done 100 tons in an entire month. Um, where we would... Go ahead. And if you can, I just want to jump in here. So listeners know what a hundred tons is can you explain what a hundred tons is so a hundred tons of, you know is that a an entire tractor trailer full so one tractor trailer carries 25 tons okay so we're looking at four tractor trailers a month a month yep. that's what we do basically when we first started um right now we average three to four hundred tons a day so 
that just shows you how we've evolved. Um, so when I first started, we just got hooked up with this company who, had, again, same thing, had just started heating their facility with these wood, with this wood. And it has been a fantastic relationship through the years because we, we've grown together. What, what is that facility? What are they actually heating? There, it's, a, it's the largest greenhouse in North America. It's sort of the same philosophy on their part. They used to heat with natural gas. And okay. it used to cost them about $30,000. If, if the temperatures were sub 32 degrees, it would cost them about $30,000 a day to heat the greenhouse. Wow. Now they're at a point with wood, it might cost them $10,000 a day. And they've also added a tremendous amount of square feet. I mean, it's over 500 acres under glass. So tremendous facility. Um, and we're just one of the suppliers. We're probably their largest supplier. Um, and we can get into to some technical things, but it, it has to do with BTUs and decotherms and our wood has a certain moisture content because we only deal with dry wood waste and they mix it with tree waste and then it becomes a good consistent um, quality uh, and it and allows it to, to burn at a consistent rate. Um, so again, this is, this is something that has evolved over many, many years and I'd say now we've gotten to a point where we're finally perfecting it. But with that being said, when I first started, I didn't even charge people to dump wood um, because I didn't know what I was doing. Like I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, now, you know, if because it, it is actually more of a waste company. We're more of a waste company than we are actually a grinding company. Okay the need to get rid of wood waste in this urban environment has is more important than actually getting rid of the commodity and in your in europe um that's the model in europe in in europe more people there are more people burning wood using the end product so it's very different the model is very different in europe they don't pay as much. Uh, there's so many people using the end material that it creates a different environment. Um, so you actually charge more on the infeed side because everybody's trying to get rid of the wood um, that you can cover all your costs on the front end to operate. And then so, away the wood. I see. So what would happen if you did not take this wood in? It would all go to the landfill. And landfill would so landfills operate on airspace and and that's what air, landfill operators all worry about is airspace because once their airspace runs out they have to shut down the landfill and then you know the trucking industry then you have to start moving garbage and and all this material has to go farther out so then carbon footprints get you know cities start worrying about carbon footprints because the trash material has to get truck farther outside of town so the whole system kind of is affected by landfills how close landfills are to urban areas um so the more you can recycle inside an urban area and and divert material away from landfill 
the better it is because you're repurposing all that material, cutting down on the overall carbon footprint of the urban areas. Brad, do you have any idea how many pallets equal a ton? Yeah, roughly. So if you go into, you know, if you just count tractor trailers full of pallets, you're probably somewhere in a neighborhood of 10, 15. So, um, cause you remember a pallet is a lot of airspace. There's not an actual lot of wood in a pallet. Right. So you're talking maybe three or 3000 pallets to grind before, um, you actually achieve a ton. And, and also pallets are all, um, uh, not all of them, but most of them are, are all kiln dried because it's water weight. Well, there's two reasons. Water weight. So they try to dry out the pallets so they're not shipping water weight, but also for bugs and any type of contaminants. Um, so they can be certified for um, food for the you know grocery market association. Is the wood hardwood rather than just pine? They'd like you to think it is. Most pallets are made out of junk. Really? Yeah, it's the cheapest material you can find. It's it's gum wood. It's, I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's it's, so, I, you know, it's the funny thing is, uh, he, so getting into all this, I, I've now become an expert in pallets, which I never thought I would ever have been. <laughs> I went from driving race cars to be becoming an a grinder guy to now becoming an expert in pallets, and it's fun because it. You know, you get, you go through life. I guess that's what being an entrepreneur is, is you, you're never done learning, you know? Right. And that's the fun part of this is, is it's always just around the corner is always some new experience. And that, that's the fun part of owning your own business, whether it's failing, because there's always a lesson in failing or, um, learning just that something new or how something else is done or how, you know, that's why I love the Europeans is they're, they're 30 years ahead of us in what we do in the recycling industry. And not to say that they have everything right because they don't. It's just it's fun to watch how they failed and, and not execute well. So, um, you know, their machinery is certainly more interesting than ours. But again, that, we'll get into that later. So what do you believe or has it been proven scientifically that burning this wood at your customer sites is better for the environment as opposed to putting it in a landfill? So that's a great question. It's the, it's the argument, right? Because it's the Knox question, um, CO2 and all that stuff. So two questions or, or two answers to that question. Okay. The first answer is yes. Uh, in a simple, because my material was heading to the landfill anyway, because it was um, already purposed into a pallet. Um, it, it, it typically, you know, arguably it is a, it, it, it's a, it was already a harvested tree, purposed, made into a pallet. Sure. So it's only last possible choice was either to end up on Etsy to end up in somebody's house right to be to end up in the landfill which would have ended up in a landfill at some point anyway so let me ask the other side why not make uh injection molded pallets from recycled plastic bottles 
instead? So it takes more industry. You know, we we use large um, diesel grinders and stuff to do what we do. Um, we're fortunate that um, you know energy's cheap right now. We'll see where that goes in the near future. But um, to make because we're at, we're often asked this to make plastic, it's way more steps and it takes way more energy to make plastic. Yeah, um, I understand. And then once you discard it, it, it doesn't break down. So there's that portion of it. It, it can never go to a, a final resting place or a repurpose. And you can't, you can't efficiently cleanly burn plastic yet to make energy whereas we can we can actually do that with wood now on that second part of that question the place that, the place that i bring the, the our material to um actually has spent tremendous amount of money on scrubbers so it's extremely clean um they're fine i mean they, they're smoke te stack tested constantly and their final product being emitted is extremely clean. They're actually allowed to burn number two fuel oil. So in the same boilers. Um, so they're, you know, they, they spent the extra money to do it correctly. And, you know, they're, they're, I, I would say that it, and, and their permit only allows them to burn so much. So again, they're governed obviously, but, um, it, it's a great question. It's, you know, the, the tree side, like, you know, can, should you be cutting down forest to burn wood? No, I, I'll say no to that. But the slash that's going to hit the bottom of the forest floor that needs to be cleaned up anyway from development, you know, that needs to go somewhere. Right. You know, go rot, you know, shouldn't just go rot in a landfill. Why not turn it into energy? So I think that's a conversation that everybody needs to have. I mean, obviously it's, it's, you know, there's, there's happy balance to everything, right? So absolutely. Is there equipment out there that you can, for instance, the greenhouse could burn your product and also not, not only make heat, but maybe make electric. There is possible. Uh, there is, there's, there's, there are companies that make um, ORC units, which are called organic Rankin cycle units, that take parasitic heat off the smokestacks. Um, would use a working fluid. Um, the the parasitic heat off the smokestack would turn a turbine. Okay. Would use a working fluid that would also, um, you know, be part of the organic Rankin cycle. Ultimately. Okay. Uh, making, I'm sorry, making electricity. It would cost them some money. Um, I don't know what the ROI is. They're expensive systems, but the, again, you, they're becoming more modular and, and frequent in Europe. I think you'll see that technology grow um, here in the United States. I, I do think you'll end up seeing that come here. As the, as the units become more modular, I mean, I've actually almost seen recently seen them pop up in California to burn some of the waste in the forest um, and make as much as 500 kW. Um, wow. So 
yes, the technology's out there. It's it's increasing. I think as people become more and more aware, um, and especially in places that are rural that can't have the grid brought to them, they could, you know, sure, have a little makeshift at least up to one, you know, megawatt. You know, I think I, again, all good conversations to have because development is going to continue. Trees are going to continue to fall. Urban waste is going to continue. You know, population is still going to be a problem. We still have to, you know, commerce is going to continue. So these are all topics that have to continue to be talked about. Okay. So is the grinder that you use anything, and you don't have to get into names and all of that, but it, is it specific for this or is this something that has been custom designed to get the ground material to what it needs to be because i would imagine that it's not just as simple as grinding a pallet and burning the wood because you're also making sure that this pallet is stays dry after you've ground it because if you're putting it in a truck and hauling it you want it to be as light as possible so well light as possible the customer wants it to be as light as possible you want it to be as heavy as possible is that is that fair <laughs> It is, it is, um, yeah, it's, so, yes, and I'll tell you, I mean, I use Rotochopper. I've had a relationship with them since I've went into business. Um, Rotochopper uh, is manufactured in Minnesota. Um, they're a great company to work with. They, they build grinders that are specifically made for grinding pallets. I wouldn't say specifically, but... Okay. That's kind of their niche market. And how much is this grinder? The one that I have is a half over a half a million dollars. Over a half a million dollars. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of their. It's a. It's a big. They make one or two larger than mine. It's a seven hundred horsepower, six hundred fifty horsepower, um, grinder. But we've moved to a three stage process. Okay. So the first stage is we use a shredder, which is a um, high torque, slow speed shredder. And that is actually a company that um, is an, it's an Austrian company called Lindner um, that produces that machine. Rotochopper and Lindner have a, a partnership that they entered in last year. That machine, the shafts turn really slow, and it breaks it down to about a 10-inch minus material. All that machine does is takes out the large, very large tramp metal, you know, pieces of railroad plates, um, half-inch thick stuff, really, really damaging metal that we used to hit with our high-speed machine. So how does it, does it have a magnet? Is that what it has? Yep, has a um 36 inch by 72 inch wide rare earth magnet. Wow. Yeah. So, and all the material comes, goes underneath that and it picks out all the steel. And can you recycle that? Oh yeah. That goes to the landfill. Correct. We do total out of all our machines. We do about 33,000 pounds of steel a week. Amazing. Yeah. Recycled, which goes recycling. Yep. Go, goes incredible. So from the, that machine, we go to the next machine, which is our high-speed machine, which is the Rotochopper. Um, 
and it never touches the ground. So it goes directly from the shredder into the roto chopper and passes through two two inch screens. Um, and then from that machine, which also has two magnets, another two magnets, it goes from there into a screening deck, um, which is a Sandvik machine, which is a shaker deck material that passes on this shaker deck and it, it splits it into three different materials. Um, and that's to service three different customers. And it, it just does that in one pass. So that's how we, we process it. Okay. And you say three different customers. Now, is that three different customers that use it for the same product, that use it for the same end use, or are these customers using it for something different? That's all three different customers. So the, the top customer would be uh, the boiler fuel. Middle customer is a mulch market. So people that die and um, sell it for landscaping mulch. And the bottom customer, which are little tiny uh, three-quarter inch minus slivers, um, that's getting pressed into uh, MDF, medium density fiberboard. Really? Yeah. So let's start with the mulch. So we know what you're doing with the boiler fuel. So you take another product and then you're selling it to companies that make mulch or are you making mulch? I don't make mulch. Um, no. So, and let's back up a little bit. So to, to balance, you said you, to, you want it to keep it as light as possible. Yes. So we have to, we have to balance all of that. And at the same time, some people we get paid on volume. Which okay. Mulch companies, we get paid on volume. And some other people we get paid on um, tonnage. Now, you don't want to... But at the same time, I have to satisfy my air quality permit here in town by not making dust, not omitting dust into the air, which is very difficult with our product. Very difficult. Um, <laughs> it, it's very difficult. But so we have to put on just enough water um, to keep the dust down. But it, at the same time, once the material goes through the mill, it, any water that's on it's kind of superficial kind of just beats it off yep. um, and then all our material goes except for one go straight into trailers so that we're not touching material it's a very refined system it just the excavator puts it into the shredder goes through the system gets put into trailers and then the trucks come and pick it up now I, i'm going back up here we didn't start that way this has been <laughs> evolution from a long time um it was never this pretty i mean it it took a very long time to get here so and are, are you the engineer of how the process started and is today are you the sole person that has figured out the workflow for everything and not necessarily the equipment per se but certainly the equipment that you need or you need to even fabricate yourself to figure out how it all needs to work. Yeah. So yes, and and that is the, my favorite part of this job. I that is back to my <laughs> that is back to my youth, back to racing. That is back to the little tiny barn that we used to build our race cars in to make that little tiny space um, so efficient. Yeah. That's what I 
love about this job is one, how to make this place run like a sewing machine mm -hmm. through your equipment or efficiency or, but, or just cool stuff. Cause that's the race racer in me is the cool stuff. Um, but more so, um, be profitable at the same time, right? <laughs> profitable at the same time is, is the more efficient you are. Cause when you get paid per tonnage, you're kind of working on a fixed income. So the only way that you can get paid more is touch it less, right? So be more efficient. And at the same time, you're building in safety, right? So that's number one. If you take, if you, if you make it easier to work on everything, and I, and I came up with this theory last year, which was I want everything to work at 60% from my equipment to my men so that everything lasts longer. Um, if you can make everything work at 60%, everything's going to be better. Like every, all your people from people to equipment, everything's going to be better. And you're going to get all your margins back. And that's where, that's my goal every day. And, and at the end of the day, I want people to come here and be stress-free. So create that environment that is just stress-free. Like, you know, again, if you're working at 60%, there's no reason you come here and be stressed out. Like, there should be no... But Brad, it, it, a businessman would say, wait a second, if you're working at 60%, you're making 60% of $100 rather than making $100 of 100 yeah. So you're giving a lot of money up. Isn't that true? Yeah, and I'm, I guess I'm very lucky and blessed that I don't chase the dollar. I never did this for the money. I never did this for the money. I, I did this so that I didn't have to get a real job. I, I, that's really the truth of it. I, I think if you, I actually just had this conversation with somebody else. I never, ever started a business so that I would be a filthy rich millionaire. I, I did this for the challenge of it and for my freedom and i think freedom trumps anything like quality of life i i, I wanted to be able to leave and go watch soccer practice whenever i wanted i wanted to be you know and i want to be able to come here on a you know any day that i want i want to come here on a sunday afternoon that's why i want to come here like it that I like being an entrepreneur, owning your own business is about the freedom to come and go when you want. And, and at the same time, um, build, um, build wealth through assets. And, that, and, and that's kind of where I'm finally understanding what being owning your own business is, is, is seeing the future of building wealth through assets and, and, I'm finally getting that balance and, and I'm excited about that because for a lot of times, for, for the longest time, I had to endure the suck, you know, borrow money, you know, it, it's not easy. It is not easy to own your own business. So if you would, can you expand on what you just said about building wealth through assets? How are you achieving that? I've been very fortunate to, through my company, meet really good people okay um really good people fine fine people that and you meet really not good people too um 
And you learn, the older you get, you learn how to weed them out. I, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway owning your own business is learning how to fail less, how to fail smarter, because you're always going to screw up, right? Sure. sure. Fail smarter. Um, and you you weed out the people that, you don't, you, you just kind of get better at weeding out the people that, you know, like, hey, you start recognizing, hey, I I got no time for you. Um, but I, I've been very fortunate to meet some really great people. And when I say building wealth through assets is you, you let the company do what you need to do for you. And then you ultimately start capitalizing on assets, you know, whether it's, it's buying property or, or figuring out how to um, make money through good business deals. Um, you know, just being smart with your money, expanding, expanding into other business ventures. Um, that's what I've kind of learned is don't stand still. Certainly don't get complacent get to a point because that, that the entrepreneur spirit is to never be satisfied, right? To just continue to, to love the process of growing. Right. Um, I'm constantly looking, you know, this, this place kind of runs itself and now I'm, I'm able to just move to the next and what do I want to do? What do I want to do next? How can I make this next thing better? Um, and, and just to kind of branch off and expand into something different, an offshoot. How many people make up Novem Industries? We're, <laughs> we're, 14 now and we're probably be we'll probably be close to 20 by the end of 2021 and how you said trucks do you have your own tractor trailers as well to transport or do you yeah. hire that out to a transport company no we own our own tractor trailers we have a fleet of eight now um and the reason, the reason we had to do uh, expand into the, such a big fleet is to manage the, the material. Um, in this commodity, a lot of times, you know, you have to ship the product as soon as possible. Right. Um, you don't get paid unless the product is delivered. So depending, you know, you know, hoping that somebody else relying on another company to ship your product is, is you just can't do that. Okay. And you know, I love trucks. I'm a truck geek. So I love, and, and again, here's another thing is it's a, it's your brand, right? So trucks right. down the road is your brand and we have really nice trucks and trailers. So it's, we get a lot of compliments on that. And I, that's, that is part of my, I just love trucks. Understood. So, you have an incredible amount of money wrapped up in equipment. Is that fair to say? Between oh, grinders and you said an excavator and who knows what else you have on the yard, right? Yeah, barriers to entry into this into this yeah, is, is is difficult. And I guess that's why we are the largest in the southeast now and what we do um, is because of the equipment um, investment is massive, massive. I and mean, it's not, and it's not something that you had the luxury of doing from day one. That's, that's the other thing, right? You mentioned that you had one truck at one point, it was one truck 
and yourself driving a truck. Correct. It was one truck and 15 dumpsters. And, and there's probably, there's $11 million worth of equipment sitting outside right now. Wow. Incredible. That's a, that's an incredible uh, number. That yep. sure is. So you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It's sitting outside in the sun and the rain, right? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes snow, I presume. Yeah. And going up and down the road. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to that too. So evolving. So you want to talk about evolving is, is learning that whole part of the trucking industry of liability. So I used to, so, so simple things like that. I used to own my own trucks and maintain my own trucks. And I looked at as my business as a whole and said, okay, where, where is my most liability lie? Nobody governs really my chips except my customers. So, and, and to be honest with you, grinders really haven't changed since the 80s i mean yeah they're a little bit different here and there but if you look at where my the liability i was exposed the most was trucking right so it's horrendous um so i moved away from owning my own trucks and then doing full service leases to so that i could put my best foot forward with exposure and now i have a a a program that I have with Mac where they maintain and, and do all the maintenance on my trucks mm. simply so that liability wise, you know, the DOT pulls us over. Everything is compliant. Everything is brand new. Everything is perfectly, you know, correct. Um, and my drivers are happier because they're in brand new, good, nice stuff. Um, again, that's a learning curve. You know, that's after being in business for 10, 12 years, it's, it's, those are the things that you learn. And is it safe to say then that with a truck lease program, if the truck breaks down, it's on them and not on you? Correct. And you know, when if full service means that they have to come tow it wherever it is, they wow. have all of that. Now you pay for that, but, Again, freedom, you know, back to my freedom, peace of mind, sleeping well at night. Um, look, I've been in business 12 years. This was the first year of being in business where I actually, I took two weeks off and went elk hunting um, and didn't really worry about the business running. Like, again, those are, those are those are things after learning being in business for a long time that you start making choices for uh, quality of life. Understood. So where, where is Novem Industries going now? So you said you, you love to innovate and you, and I'm not asking for your next best idea. I'm not asking for that at all, Brad, but where, does Novem expand? Can Novem expand what they're doing nationally? Is that possible? You know, two years ago, I would have said no, because I, I didn't really have a good system. You know, okay. I, I, but now um, this is a good system I have. It's a good system. Um, the equipment is good. The system is good. 
what is so important to this working though are end markets. Um, end markets for this commodity are very difficult to find. Um, this is unlike rock. It's not like concrete where you have so many customers that want this end product. This is a hard product to, to market. Um, so you have to, it's a balancing act because you can, I could have way more in feed. The problem is managing the out feed. Sure. So I'm poking on the in feed and have nowhere to go with it. But so, I have to, I got to interrupt here. So there's pallets all across the world, certainly all across this country, right? Yeah. We know that there's mulch. I'm going to say all across the country as well. Sure. Is there not enough of a demand for you to take pallets in other urban areas, just like you're doing now currently and do what you're doing? Because are, are those other mulch companies doing what you're doing the same way? No. See, the problem with mulch companies is mulch is very expensive. Dyed colored mulch is very expensive to make. Okay. And why is that? Because of the colorant, the colorant and water. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. So th they rely on getting a lot of free material from tree people. Um, so back to your original question, could I do it? Yeah, you could. And, and yes, a lot of pallet shops rely on this way of doing things um, in order to to do, to do this business. Are there people doing what I do in other regions? Yes, there is. Um, it's to do it in this volume though, all year long. It's hard, Jason. I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's, um, I don't know. I, I would, the, I would say maybe we, we, for the first time in being in business, I would consider moving it to another market in, in this idea, this business plan to another market. Well, uh, it, it's, a, it's taking this, this amount of equipment, this amount of, you know, this whole scenario and, and moving it, this amount of money, moving it to another location. Well, I guess what I was getting at is this, is you have 12 years of experience of doing it. What's to say that someone, some business owner that currently owns, let's hypothetically say they own a nursery, right? Yeah. They yeah. own a nursery with an incredible amount of land because I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, and we haven't even discussed what your actual property size is to do all of this at or what it needs to be, or what it ideally needs to be. But they have a nursery, and they see a need for something like this. What's to say that you can't? they can't hire you as a consultant, and you help them get up and running, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how you're expanding your assets, as, as you say. Sure. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Um... That's certainly a possibility. It, it, there are people that probably are sitting on gold mines and don't even realize it. Correct. 
um, the urban part of this scenario is the probably the big key part. You have to have you have to have the ability to collect the material. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to collect the material, um, and then you have to be you have to be willing to put up with the the towns or the cities and the and the red tape and the and the bureaucracy in in permitting to get through all of that. Um, and and build partnerships inside the cities to get this done because it's not easy. It is Absolutely. not. And, and I'm look. We always. I've said this on my previous streams as well. We always underestimate how difficult something is. Yeah. Always right. We always think it's much easier than than it really is. And this is no different. However, you've already gone down that road, so you know all the ins and the outs in terms of when the question is asked you know the answer, right? In terms of the dust and all of those things that you have yeah. discussed. So while a current business owner of a nursery, for example, might not know that, but has the land and the desire and the consultation with you to see if it's feasible in that market, you know at least the questions to ask that person, he sure. or she, right? Yeah. And that's what's really important. So you can expand it. This is something that you can expand to other markets because I have a hard time thinking that this is only available in Charlotte, North Carolina, right? No, I mean, th so there's a company that's way bigger than me in Ohio that does this. I mean, they're 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 monstrous. Um, as far as land space, I mean, I'm only working on five acres here in Charlotte. Um, and actually really two and a half, three are what we use. Um, so you don't need a lot. If you want to expand into mulch where you're making the mulch product, you need more space because you have to stockpile. And then with mulch, you need a drying pile and a working pile. So there's, there's reasons that you need more space. Right. Um, but yes, if I was to move to another market or help somebody expand in a market, um, yeah, I mean, there are certain ways that you would want to do things. Obviously, money would be a factor in, in your limitation, but mulch is a great way to get rid of this material. There, this material is not going anywhere. Right. It is always going to be a problem. Um, Europe, Europe moved away from what we'll call a, a GMA, Grocery Market Association Palette, which is a standard palette that we all know and love in America, um, and have started taking their palettes and grinding them and making them into a pressed palette. Um, and that's how they're kind of getting rid of their wood waste is they're, they're grinding up their, their wood and smushing them into a pressed palette. The problem with that is they don't have a life cycle they literally almost get used once and then they discard them. So it's almost counterintuitive because um, they're, they're using, a, they're ex expensing a lot of energy to make this press pallet and they're only getting one use out of them. Right. Whereas a, the current pallet that you see here in America, those could be in, I think they're in cycle for probably five, six years. Wow. I mean, it's incredible how durable and how 
how far and how long they last. So, um, yeah, expanding into a market um, is probably the next viable option for us um, as far as what we plan on doing. You know, I've been approached about going into the pallet business. I don't want to do that. Okay. Uh, that's something we, you and I haven't even touched on yet is that's another big part of our business is we actually recycle a tremendous amount of pallets, um, just pulling them out of the waste stream, basically t recovering the ones that are good and salvageable and selling them back to the pallet companies. So you're not, when you say recycling, you're not grinding them, you're actually repairing them and selling them back into the industry. No, we don't actually even repair them. We we literally only pull the ones out that are actually usable. They're called RFIs, ready for issue. We pull them out, basically dust them off, restack them up, reload them in the trailers or store them, and then sell them back. And so you're telling me that companies are dropping off pallets that are 100% usable from the moment they drop them off. Correct. And, and, and in fairness to them, they don't even know. I mean, because... We get 50 roll-offs in here a day, you know, where they're just backing in and dumping out. And in there is, you know, probably 90% brand new good pallets where a company was just unpackaging their goods and then they throw their pallet into their dumpster that's sitting outside their business. And I then see. that comes to us, gets emptied out. We charge them to empty the dumpster. We take the, we take the good pallets out, sell them, and then we only grind the ones that are bad. Gotcha. Is this material able to be burnt in like a home wood burning stove? Sure. The the only thing you're going to be left with nails. That's that's the only downside. Is if you burn a pallet. Oh well, no 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 no! Not the pallet. If you were to grind a pallet, which then you remove the nails, right? Oh. Can you sell, is that even a product that could be sold or used of grinding pallets and then people use them in wood-burning stoves? Because let's face it, wood-burning stoves are everywhere, especially in the Northeast and out West and the Midwest where it's cold. Sure. The only problem with that is it would smother the fire because it's so, it's so, it would go in dense. Um, it's, it's a little hard to meter in. They do sell stoves bigger, larger industrial stoves that you could burn our material in. And it's got a screw auger and it, and it meters in. And it's more for like a hot water system for like a shop. Okay. So there's other alternatives for businesses to heat their facility with your material. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you could, there's tiny little, I'll say tiny, there's as small of a wood burning stove as the size of a home boiler system. Okay. That burn our material. A hopper sits outside the, the house. Yeah. And you have to shovel it in there or put it in with a tractor. Um, but yeah, I mean, if we lived in a, a colder environment, let's say like Michigan, that would mm -hmm. be a very common thing. Yeah. Okay. So what's your next step? I don't know. Um, my next step is probably, so one of the things that we're fighting right now is um, storage space. Okay. Is just having the ability, like any business, um, you know, 
warehouse, you know, Walmart or Amazon or anything is warehousing product, right? So the only way we can do that is vertically or horizontally. Um, and we have to figure outside of town where we can store product um, so that we can do it vertically. Uh, so that's kind of what we're we're identifying right now for 2021 is trying to identify a piece of property outside of town where we can continue to take in because a large amount of our waste, the waste stream that comes in is taken in during the summer. Um, and we move a consistent amount of in the spring and summer, but the bulk of ours goes out in the winter. Tremendous amount goes in the winter. So we need to be able to harvest all we can during the summertime and then stockpile that offsite in a, on a property. Um, so that's what we're trying to identify. And, you know, it's a balancing act of tremendous, you know, staying somewhat close to the city, but you know, the price is just ridiculous. So we got, that's, that's the balancing act right now. Things are looking good for 2021. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, um, we had a, you know, we had a tremendous 2020. Um, I know it wasn't that way for a lot of people. Um, I feel very, very gifted, very blessed that, that we were able to have such a great 2020. Um, very fortunate. And um, I hope that it continues into 2021. Um, all our business partners, um, so far feel the same and we'll 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 stay that positive and hopefully move into 2021 with that attitude brad i really appreciate you taking your time out on january 1st of 2021 to speak with me about this it's uh, been fascinating and i much appreciate it and certainly look forward to hearing more about your business as it continues to grow so please keep me updated and let me know if there's anything that we need to know Thank you, Jason. And it was a pleasure spending a little while with you on uh, the first of 2021. It, uh, it was awesome. So thank you for inviting me. I had a great time. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too, buddy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Find us on YouTube and Facebook at the Intellectual People Podcast and online at the intellectualpeoplepodcast.com. Check back for exciting new episodes.